Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the Into the Word podcast here with a panel of my favorite Bible readers uh, as we spend some time together going through the Word this week. Joined today by Pastor Rob Brockman uh, from Living Hope Church in Georgetown, Pastor Jesse Stewart from Fireside Church in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and Dr. Wyatt Graham, the Executive Director of TGC Canada. So welcome to all of you and thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here. All right. Well, I want to jump right into it this week. Once again, uh, we have some uh, some ground to cover, particularly in the book of Genesis. Uh, this week in the chapters that we were reading, we began to pass out of the Abrahamic narrative proper, the, the part about Abraham's story himself. And, and we began to enter into the, the story as told through the experiences of his children and grandchildren. So now the focus is on the family of faith. And this family is being used by God to illustrate the principles and contours of the life of faith. So this is not just a story. Uh, it is a paradigm and it's a pattern. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of features of this story. Obviously, we could zoom in on big part of, you know, this this program is is selection. How do we figure out which narratives we're going to focus in on? Uh, but when you're in the Old Testament, I think it's particularly helpful to help our, our readers and our listeners figure out how the New Testament is interacting with the old. That Consistently, that's uh, one of the main things that people say by way of feedback is they appreciate when we make these connections. In terms of connection, probably the most significant connection between what we read this week in Genesis and the New Testament comes in the story of Jacob and Esau. Uh, so the basic contours of that story uh, is that now we're in the generation of Isaac and uh, Isaac and Rebecca, similar to Abraham and Sarah, they have a hard time getting pregnant. Isaac is an old man, uh, I'm sure nervous and concerned. His wife is nervous and concerned. They're praying. Isaac prays for his wife. God grants her a a pregnancy. And then it turns out that she's pregnant with twins. And uh, they're wrestling inside of her. And there's this wonderful word of prophecy. God comes to her in her distress and says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. All right, so right, right there, it clues us into the fact that God is intervening in the normal outworking of a, of a family story. Normally, the older one would be served by the younger. That's, that's how it would normally go. But here is God messing with this story, as it were, in order to teach a principle of faith. So, Wyatt, walk us through how that story works out, and then... Also help us figure out how this story becomes a big part of the the sort of uh, favored illustrations in Romans and in Hebrews as they begin to talk about what faith is. Yeah, I mean, it's a big question, so I'll try to keep it as minimalistic as possible. But here with uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, you kind of have a story that's repeated throughout Scripture. I mean, already in the early parts of Genesis, you have um, Cain and Abel, two brothers, Earlier on in Genesis 3, you have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman who will be at conflict with one another. I even have that a little bit with Ishmael and Isaac as well. There's actually similarities. Uh, Esau is a uh, hunter and Ishmael is also an expert in the bow. Kind of reminds you a little bit of Nimrod, who's a great hunter as well. So this story ends up being repeated over and over. The two brothers, the two kingdoms, the two seeds, the two, the kingdom of dark, kingdom of likeness, uh, uh, kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light, rather. Sorry about that. Um, you see this throughout scripture. There's this kind of these two things that are end up um, happening. Two nations, really. So once you get to the New Testament, this gets picked up, especially in Romans 9, 
or Paul makes the argument, not all Israel is Israel. How can he make an argument like that? Well, the answer is because God actually only promised to bless Israel according to the promised line. Mm. And he works that all that out in Romans 9 with Jacob and Esau. Hebrews 11 is very interesting. It's a hall of heroes passage. And again, you kind of see the promised line working out and you see that they were really not looking forward to a particular geography, but really the city of God, not the city of man, but the city of God, not earthly geography, but the heavenly Zion. And in chapter 12, that kind of gets talked about. And then you have all the promised saints in the Old Testament there made perfect by the work of Jesus. So that's a big picture. There's two seeds and they end up at the end of all time. Um, getting worked out with the heavenly city of God with the promised line there and the unpromised line can enter into it only by faith and through blessing in that line. Just one quick note that popped into my head. You even see this with the, uh, with the sons of Noah, Yeah. how the blessing works. I think it's Genesis nine that just popped in my head, but I think it, yeah, Genesis nine at the very end, uh, it's the uh, Shem, Jephthah and all that kind of stuff. Right. So you have one promised line there and others get blessed only in that promised line. Yeah, and, and of course, so everything in the Abrahamic story is intended uh, as sort of illustration in advance, right? Mm-hmm. Abraham's family is called the family of faith, not because they invented faith and not even because they were really good at faith, because often they were not, but because God is intentionally telling the story of faith through this family. And so the, the Jacob and Esau, you're right, it picks up this idea that certainly not all the not all those who are biologically related to Abraham are going to be brought into this promise. So, you know, it's not enough to say we are the children of Abraham. Lots of people can say we're the children of Abraham who have nothing to do with the promises of God. Mm-hmm. So there's something else going on here. But then you talk about Romans 9. Paul in Romans 9 uses this story to, to illustrate the, the doctrine of election. Mm-hmm. So help our listeners understand that and they haven't got to Romans nine yet, but they're going to um, in a week and a half. So if they understand this story, then Romans nine is going to be a lot easier to read. So help us out with that a little bit, just panel generally. Yeah, I'll jump in here. So um, Romans nine verses 11 to 13, maybe I should just read that first so we can hear that for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls just as it's written, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. So Paul's answering the question here. Why did God choose one Jacob and not the other Esau? So that God's purpose would stand that God saves not due to merit, but according to his character, which I argue is essentially goodness. Uh, God's election does not stem from a delight that uh, some would perish, but rather election issues from God's goodness, from God's essential graciousness and compassion as per Exodus 34, which is actually quoted uh, subsequently in Romans 9. So even condemnation of rebellious sinners issues from his goodness because it's for a good end to make known the riches of his glory towards vessels of mercy, that the vessels of, of, of mercy may, be, may know that mercy. So Talk there's pause on that because that's the piece. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of pieces here I, don't, I think people struggle with. Uh, Rome, I, don't, I think you could make an argument. Romans 9 is, uh, I don't want to say the most complicated because I don't know if it's that complicated. I would, and I hate to use the word distasteful. But uh, it, it's, it is the chapter that sticks in a lot of throats. How about that? Yeah. Um, and when you stumble across a verse like Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, a lot of people just, I don't know what to do with that, right? Because God is love. Doesn't he love everybody? What in, the, what in the world are we supposed to do with that? 
So a couple things I think is important to say here. The main burden of the argument in Romans 9 is for God to show that most of the reasons we would assume lie behind God's election do not. Um, so he, most of what Paul is doing is negative teaching. He's saying, don't think for a second that this is about biology, as if God prefers Jews to, to Egyptians or, or Mexicans or Canadians, right? That's, that's got nothing to do with it. Not all who are of the flesh of Abraham are the children of promise, right? Like, so this is not about being related to Abraham. Lots of people in the story related to Abraham are excluded from the purposes of election. And it's got nothing to do with social standing. Birth order was a big deal in that culture. God is always messing with it, right? Almost in every story where there's birth order, God's messing with it. So he's saying, I don't care about your worldly standards of priority. That doesn't impress me. And then also the key line is before, while they were in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, God chose. Mm. So God's purposes of election have nothing to do with foreseeing who's going to be righteous. I don't know. God sees far enough to know that we're all unrighteous. So it's not about future merit. And so most of what Paul's doing here is negative teaching, right? Just saying, this has got nothing to do with any of the things you think it does. But of course, that leaves the reader asking the question, okay, so what does it have to do with it? Anybody want to take a stab at that? It's kind of a trick question. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the tough thing, especially when you think about Esau's narrative too, like it's very tragic like the, the the narrative of the Edomites is just heart-wrenching and heartbreaking. And I think that makes it even harder to swallow because you have this God choosing between Jacob and, and Esau, delighting in Jacob. Jacob gets a lot of these blessings from by some pretty shifty behavior too. Like he's lying, deceiving. He's not a better man. That's not what no. He's completely not a better man, but it looks almost as if, well, God's picking one according to merit about things that they have done. But the, the narrative shows the opposite. In fact, Esau, isn't it Esau who shows grace and mercy and kindness to Jacob? Isn't Jacob's afraid of Esau that he's going to hold this against me? And instead Esau comes out, grabs him, weeps over him. And so we're, we're, we're knocking this argument down that somehow like it's, it's works or something that, and God's going, no, in fact, look at Jacob, look at his, look at the story as we go into his kids, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of grossness, a lot of nastiness. This has nothing to do with what we have done, but it has to do with God's purpose of election, his purpose and plan, his promise to Adam and Eve, the seed. That's what we're tracing here, not human righteousness or right decisions. Well, I think it might be go back to something Jesse said, just uh, to, to turn it into a question that, that the panel can pull up, because I, I think this is where a lot of people struggle too. We all want to know, okay, why did God choose? Sure. Um, that the, the next question is, but why does God not not choose? So I, I think we probably all agree that it's dangerous to ask the question, why did God choose Jacob? Let's just say it had nothing to do with Jacob. Um, but why did God not choose Esau? So, you know, that's, some people start calling that double predestination or, or Jesse, you said that, that too, the not choosing of Esau comes from God's goodness. That sounds nice. That sounds like something you, that, you know, a theologian would put on a, on a Hallmark card if theologians made Hallmark cards, but I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense to the average person. Anybody want to take a stab at that? How is not choosing Esau a good thing? 
Well, what I would maybe go is if you keep reading into Paul's argument, essentially he starts to highlight God's mercy. He starts to saying, so, so you want to fault God for showing mercy to whom he would choose to show mercy. It's kind of this idea of Jonah and the Ninevites getting angry at God because God is merciful and he is gracious. And, and I think that that's what Paul, what Paul goes kind of later on, he gets kind of harsh and he's like, is there injustice on God's part? No. And then it's like, well, why does God fight? Why would God pick Esau, not Jacob? And then essentially his response is, look, you're just a man. Like you don't understand God is merciful and he is gracious. And honestly, it's like, well, who are you mortal man to kind of even ask these questions? So there's a real humbling that we have a real understanding of our sin and our brokenness and how it's got, it's up to God on, on who he will choose to show mercy. Not that that's an, an easier pill to swallow. That's, that's why Paul makes this argument, because that's also an offensive argument. That's why he anticipates those sorts of arguments. But it's the mercy of God that's ruling the day here. And, and that's hard for us as humans to swallow, because we don't, we don't like that. It appears unjust to us. Yeah. yeah. Any, anybody want to contribute to that? Well, I think the end of Paul's argument in Romans 9 is really the end of chapter 11. And I think it's useful to see what he says about his own argument that he's just described. And in 1133, he says, Oh, the, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and, and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways mm. for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. I think what a lot of people have observed is whenever you have God's kind of elective uh, movements in scripture, it's always out of mercy and love and compassion. I mean, the fact that the Logos incarnated for us, for us and for our yeah. salvation, the fact that Israel was chosen. Deuteronomy 7, Moses already agreed, or Paul already agrees with Moses. Moses knew the story in Deuteronomy 7. He says, guys, God didn't choose you, Israel, because you're more numerous than the rest, <laughs> but because he loved you. Why did he love you? Because he loved you. Yeah. And I actually think um, maybe this is a bit discordant than other answers, but I actually don't think we ought to answer that question. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> I don't know why God, God's mercy works out this way. I just simply cannot fathom it. But I do and know. Why, that's that, an important thing for people to hear that there may be a reason, but we don't be. know what it is. And we can only know what the Bible tells us. And in Romans 9, which is really the only chapter in the Bible that really digs into the why of election, all it says is what it's not. And so maybe that's all we've got. We can say, well, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And then after that, you should probably just say, you know, I don't know. The, the reason is somewhere in God, it'll work out for his glory and for good. But but that's probably yeah. all we can say about that. Well, I, I would like to add also, so I, I agree with that, the, the fact that God is God and we are not. And we, at the ed edge of our human understanding, we need to bow before God's sovereignty and know that he does all things well according to his goodness and his justice, his righteous uh, character. I think at the end of the day, we, we just need to bow before the Lord and tremble and say, Lord, you're the potter, I'm the clay. Um, who am I to, to speak against what you're saying? So if our question is, yep. um, is combative, we have the, a wrong spirit. But I, I will say that there is some mystery here. And, and he, he sort of describes it here in verses uh, 22 and 23 of chapter 9 of Romans. 
He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? Verse 23, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon mm. objects of mercy. So how, how do we how do we put those pieces together? Um, how should we understand God's glory in his mercy displayed on vessels of mercy? How is that magnified against a backdrop of his righteous judgment against sinners? I don't know how those <laughs> things go work together, but I do understand that they do. And, um, and so- yeah, and it's that, and it's the, you're hitting on the whole, what does God say to Job, you know, at the end of Job? just like hey man where were you when i uh, crafted all this when i made all this like it's not we often take that as a condemnation from god but ultimately the point is there, there are things that are mysteries that i just will not understand and faith and is is knowing god's word is believing it wholly and then resting in the mystery at times and and his sovereign control is what gives us comfort in that ministry because he's still good we know enough from his word that he's good he's in control and that can lead us to a bit of peace especially with questions like this that are harder. So God, yeah, go ahead, Justin. So God, God's patience and his justice is glorified in vessels of wrath and yeah. his mercy is glorified in vessels of mercy. Yeah. And that's why I think actually it's, it's, I love the way the Bible is written. The Bible doesn't give us theological definitions, right? It gives us stories. Now that's not to say there aren't principles. There, there are principles that, you know, Romans nine is filled with principles, but I'm saying in Genesis, we get stories. And generally, when you put stories and principles together, you, you get a level of clarity uh, that, is, that is very helpful. And, and so I would say, look at the story. Uh, you know, the, the story shows that God's choice was just with respect to Esau. Um, it's not as though Esau was a kingdom man at heart and God <laughs> shut him out. No, no, no. Esau's story shows that God was perfectly just to shut him out. He, he cared less for the kingdom than he, than he did for a bowl of stew. So there was no injustice on God's part. God was exactly right. And, and then in, in the, the selection of Jacob, what we see is a display of God's mercy, that God, God pursued Jacob. God kept turning and twisting Jacob's narrative towards faith. And so you, you kind of get both. You get God saying, hey, look, this is what happens when you leave people on their own. They show themselves to be not kingdom people. But then look, this is what happens when you pursue people with grace and with mercy and kindness. Mm-hmm. You can twist and turn them towards, towards faith or God can do that. And so at the end of the story, I think two things you know, need to be said. One is that God's playing a very long game anyway. Uh, you, know, you, you talked about Romans 11. At the end of Romans 11, Paul's saying, you know, hey, listen, all Israel will be saved. Now, theologians can debate what that means, but it means, you know, this is, this is going to result in a great harvest. Election is not about narrowing the field. So God's playing a real long game, but then, but then also nobody's, nobody's being treated unfairly. Um, God is displaying his justice and letting some people experience the fruits of their own, con- uh, of their own choices. And then, and then God is being extraordinarily merciful in, in not leaving some people to the consequences of their own choices and, mm. and pursuing them and twisting them towards faith. And so I think the only conclusion when you read all of this is just to say, you know what, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Mm. The only thing I'm sure of after this story is that there's no reason for me to be boasting about how smart I am yeah. uh, for, for seeing uh, the kingdom when other people missed it, because it must have been God's pursuing mercy. Yeah. Uh, incredible story. Uh, want to hit one more of these incredible stories, faith narratives before we move on. 
it's a, it's a minor note where we just dealt with the with the major note. But at the end of Genesis 26, there's this funny little minor note. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, this stands in obvious contrast to the great lengths that Abraham went uh, to in order to get a, a believing or a suitable or an appropriate wife for Isaac. Isaac uh, does not appear to have imitated that in getting a wife for Esau. He left his kids kind of to their own devices at first. And Esau ends up marrying unwisely. It brings uh, great regret for the whole family. And then in Genesis 27, after Jacob steals the blessing, Rebecca says to her husband, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. That's just kind of funny. Um, funny little reminder that marrying poorly will, will make your mama sad. Uh, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? I feel like this is an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So now Isaac does uh, for, for his son Jacob what his father Abraham did for him. He sends the child of promise back to Paden Aram to find a suitable partner. Now, all of this seems to, to introduce a theme that recurs again and again and again through the biblical narrative, that our most intimate relationships can either strengthen or weaken our grasp on the promises and blessings of God. And, and you see maybe the, the Old Testament climax of that theme in Nehemiah 13, where Nehemiah says, he's, this is, you know, you remember the, we talked about this, I think last week, the mass divorce at the end of Ezra and Ezra chapter 10, uh, the people have very unwisely married women of the land, again, un unbelievers. And it's just, it's just been a disaster. You know, Ezra sits in shock. He's almost in a coma. Nehemiah is far more active. He's pulling people's hair out and smacking them. Uh, and, and he says, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So there's that thread again, this idea that our most intimate relationships can either push us closer to the center of God's purpose, push us deeper into God's blessings, or can actually break our grasp on those things. Hmm. So here's the question. I'll throw out a few questions to the panel generally. Is it always wrong for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Number two, how much influence should Christian parents try to have on their kids uh, in terms of marital choices? What if a person becomes a Christian but is already married to a non-Christian? What about that? What advice would you give to a 23-year-old young woman or young man who is a follower of Jesus and thinking about getting married? So, Jesse, get us started with that, and then, you know, panel, kind of jump in and, and uh, fill out this pastoral wisdom for us. Well, I believe that it is the biblical expectation that a child of God must marry within the family of God. Uh, I think that's pretty clear throughout the witness of scripture. Marriage among God's children should always be one man and one woman, biological man and woman who are within the covenant community, who are part of Abraham's family. 
And whenever there's a departure from that marital design or a perversion of that purpose, uh, things never go well. So think on David, for example, uh, his lust for an additional wife led to right sin and judgment. He committed statutory rape, murder, cover up, and then God punished him by taking the life of his son by Bathsheba. And then even David's son, Solomon, uh, he had lust for many hundreds of foreign wives. And that is what led his heart into idolatry and to the eventual splitting of Israel into the northern and, and southern kingdom. And so in the Bible, God's design for marriage is what leads to life. And any perversion of that design is what leads to death. And in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that widows should only remarry in the Lord. Uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 9 that the apostles have the right to take a believing wife with them, that is Christian wives within the covenant community. And in 2 Corinthians 6, he commands Christians, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is, do not enter in to a binding partnership um, with pagans. And so the biblical expectation is always one man, one woman within the covenant community, part of Abraham's family. Uh, so far, so good, right? And that's exactly what we see here in Genesis 26. Nothing good comes from having multiple spouses or having foreign spouses outside of Abraham's family, even his extended family. Why? Because a perversion of God's ways always leads to death. When Esau took two foreign wives, he made life better for his parents. And so Christians should only marry someone who's in the Lord. They should only marry believers. But we do live in a fallen world, kind of like what Pastor Paul was saying, where at, not everyone is a believer. And sometimes you have two unbelievers who are married and one comes to faith. You know, what do we do then? Well, I would counsel someone who's in that situation, according to 1 Corinthians 7. Um, first off, don't divorce your spouse. Um, stay faithful. Uh, love your spouse. Serve them faithfully. Pray for your spouse, share the gospel with them, seek to imitate Christ in everything that you do. Uh, you may just win them over with your good works. Uh, they may see your good works and glorify the father who is in heaven. Uh, but I will be honest with you. That is a very difficult assignment. Uh, there's a woman in my church right now who we're in consistent counseling with who's struggling with that very thing. She married an unbeliever as an unbeliever when they were 19. And she came to faith two years in and the husband now has no affection for the things of God, does not desire um, the things of God, accountability, the church fellowship. Uh, he's not a member of the church. And, um, and so we've really had to help her walk through a theology of suffering and trusting the Lord and coming alongside her, praying for her, getting a good community around her. Um, and uh, she is resolved to make Christ her priority uh, to continue to go to church and fellowship with the church, uh, even though it's hard. So, uh, I think get yourself around a lot of believers. If, um, if, if you're in that situation, you're going to need uh, support and prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't want to speak for you guys, but I don't imagine anybody would disagree with, with that. I, I think you've summarized really well. I'd throw a little, a little, just a interesting comment in there. And I'm, I'm not going to try to explain this text because it's, it's very complicated, but there's a sentiment that it expresses in first Corinthians seven fourteen. It says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his mm -hmm. wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are, they are holy. Uh, the extent to which that extends, I'm not sure, but I think the, the idea here is that there is a sanctifying influence that a, a believing spouse can have on their family. That's a graciousness on, on the part of the Lord and a mercy 
that, hey, if I find myself unequally yoked with my wife and my kids are not following the Lord and I become saved, there's a promise there that, hey, the Lord can use you. Um, it is possible for the Lord to make you kind of that sanctifying influence in your family. And that is a place to rest a lot of hope and rest a lot of um, comfort in like, okay, like right. the Lord can still do something. The Lord's going to use me to be a, a sanctifying influence. I think that's very encouraging. Yeah. Let me, let me, so I've got two questions in, in my mind. One relates directly to that. So I, I 100% agree. And I think you're right. That's there for comfort. I don't, I think the apostle Paul is saying, look, you know, listen, don't for a second think that your kids are beyond hope because your, your spouse is not a believer. No, no, no. You, you might win your spouse. You might win your kids. You know, holiness is contagious. Um, but, but here's the, the question you'll often get back or a related question. Well, if, if then this can be effective in spreading faith, maybe we should missionary date. Maybe we should missionary Work to convert. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, because God can bring good out of it, shouldn't we do it? I'm playing devil's advocate, I, but, but I've, I've been asked that question many times. I'm sure you have too. How, how would you answer that? Yeah. Like let's sin to make something you know, positive, you know, and it's just like, it's the logic doesn't fall and you need to see the dangers. Like, again, we've just mentioned Solomon, David, like we just went through a list of disaster stories of what happens. And we can't think that we're, the exception. This is why Paul says this stuff, right? We're typically not the exception. And there is no situation biblically that Paul would affirm where we do that. He's talking about somebody who's married an unbeliever and then gets saved. I think it's very clear that scripture would speak against that and it would be very unwise. That kind of goes back to the conversation we just had about moral responsibility and God's sovereignty. God has sovereign plans that, that work out, but we're still held accountable for our actions, right? That's it. And so there's lots of sin in the Jacob and Esau, Rebecca, you know, that, that whole story. Everybody's sinning in that story. Mm -hmm. And yet God's sovereign purpose works out. And yet he also holds them accountable for all their freely chosen choices in the process. So, mm -hmm. so I, I think to somebody who's saying, well, I'm going to make some sinful choices because I've, I've seen God bring good out of sinful choices. That's a very dangerous game to play. Yeah. Um, you'll still be held accountable for your sinful choices. Mm -hmm. And it's do doubtful that you can game God. So yeah. I'm guessing if you think that's what you're doing, God's going to do something else and he's going to show his justice in your sinful choices. So yeah. don't game God. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I do think there might be a problem that will come into a lot more commonly now, though. You're going to have two people living together with children who yeah. decided not to marry because it's a, just an institution. Yep. They're faithful to each other insofar as they have agreed to stay together, have children together. They're 32, 35. One of them becomes a Christian yeah. and they come to church and say, well, I have two kids. I love this man or what, you know, whoever it is, your spouse. Yeah. And we're committed to each other. Like what do I have to leave him or her or ought we not to get married? We have kids. We actually wrote a policy on that at our church yeah. uh, three or four years ago. And I've had people email me as, asking for it because church, you know, churches all over the place are realizing we need a policy on that. What, you know, and so if you're interested, you can email us and we'll, we'll send you the, send you the policy, but you have to think that through. Cause you're absolutely right. If you are reaching out to unsaved people right now and you're getting actual unsaved unchurched people um, to come to Christ, you, you better know how you're going to deal with that. Are, are you going to blow up a family with, with three kids in it? Um, what's going to be the process there? Yeah. Well said. All right. So here's my last question. How much influence should, so this, in this story, it would look to me, that parents are being commended here or encouraged 
to do everything they can to influence their children towards a godly mate. Is this just a, something we, we blow off and say, well, yeah, but I mean, they also fed their sheep out of holes in the ground. I mean, it's just so meaning this just doesn't transfer over into the <laughs> modern world. Or is there a principle here that we've neglected? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. In terms of like influence of parents on uh, children and their relationships, I think as long as they're in their household, they're under uh, their authority, they need to be directed by their their parents with godly wisdom. I think that's the biblical mandate. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 is really clear on that, that parents need to disciple their children. And I think that means putting before them the biblical expectation for believers to marry believers. Um, so Isaac and Rebecca failed to do that, obviously, in this text. And I think actually in uh, Genesis 28, a few chapters later, we can see Esau, I, th- I think he seems surprised at Rebecca yeah. and Isaac's call to Jacob not to take a Canaanite wife. He's like, why didn't I think about that? Maybe I, I would have. Let's go, let's go marry one of another wife. Yeah. <laughs> let's take on, uh, Ishmael's Ishmael's uh, daughter. And so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I do believe it's, it is the parent's responsibility. I think Isaac and Rebecca realized, wow, um, because of our disobedience and not parenting, um, uh, Esau, we're now reaping the consequences. We don't want more bitterness <laughs> to be inflicted on us if, uh, through Jacob's foreign wives, if he was to pursue them. So we want to kind of mitigate our suffering. I think that was yeah. the motivation. How that's done today will obviously be different then. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I'm the, yeah, I'm the only one here with adult kids. Um, and uh, I, I can tell you it's tricky, right? Um, up, up until the age of 18, you have a lot of influence over your children. You know, in our home, we, we sort of had a no dating before 18. Our, our kids have been very respectful of that. Um, but then, of course, after 18, they move out of the house. Um, it, it's, it's a different story. So I think, I think there's just a, a reminder and the, there's a principle here which is really talk to your kids about the importance of marrying in the faith, really encourage them, set a good example. Um, and yeah, I, there are many days I wish we were back in the time when, when I could just uh, say, Hey, I found a spouse for you. Um, but I would say the principle still is have as much influence, teach on this, talk on this and spare your kids uh, a lot of heartache if you can. You know, as a newly married guy, I'm obviously the expert on raising kids. So, um, but <laughs> <laughs> my 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 headspace right now thinking about going into this is gospel modeling i think always trumps law and and i and i pray that the way that i love sienna and the way that we we live in our relationship the way that we teach our kids in graciousness and in gospel truth and not in law but in modeling christ-like love um the way that christ loved his church and, and then teaching that clearly to our kids. But mod, I'm praying that our model, I think, will just be like, why would I want anything else? Like, I'm, I'm praying as a parent that, that, that I'm going to make that my path. I, as opposed to making too many laws and rules, which you need to do. And I will, of course, have rules. But yeah. I certainly am putting a lot of stock in, I'm going to grow my love for my wife and serve her and love her well so that my kids go, there's no way I'm getting that unless it's, in Christ, uh, a husband in Christ, you know, hundred percent. we just last night at the dinner table, uh, this wasn't coordinated. Like my wife and I didn't coordinate this, but 
the kids were talking, the kids were actually talking about how rarely mom and dad fight. They were saying the last fight they can remember is we were fighting about cereal. And uh, we, we joked about it. it wasn't really about cereal, guys, just so you know. Yeah, yeah. But but we actually, I could see like in her eyes and my eyes, we, we seized on this to talk about how mm. God's blessed us, how our relationship has been such an encouragement to us, how we just feel so, we feel the kindness of the Lord in, in the gift of each other to mm-hmm. each other. We talked about that in front of two of our adult kids, we, we, or two of our kids who are adults, I should say, we, we talked about that for several minutes as a kind of like passive, Ooh. you know, to use your expression, this is, this is a grace thing, not a law thing. Yeah. Yeah. Do what you can. Yeah. It's an important principle. Yeah. Good well, story. I would love to just tackle question four very quickly because I feel like I forget what question four was. What was it? That was speaking to single people. And oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I just, cause as you know, I've been, I was, I got married late in life. So I've been single most of my life um, up until recently. And I think one thing, one thing that I would say to my younger self. So if you're single, if you are a 23 year old young man or woman and you're follower and you're thinking about getting married, I would say this, like seize the opportunity you have right now to learn how to love the church, because that is going to serve you in your marriage tremendously. um, Because that's so much of what we're modeled off of. You have freedom now, you have liberty now that you, won't necessarily have later and you can pour and learn the practices and the skill sets and the the muscle memory of graciousness, kindness, forgiveness, service. Like you can do that with your church. And that is a wonderful place to do that. And I would say that the need to get married, the longing to get married is a good godly thing. We're made that way. God designed us that way. Um, and a lot of that can be satisfied and 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 practiced in the local church. And I would really, I would really encourage people like don't be side sitters in church. If you're young and you're single and you're looking for a spouse, like man, work on godliness, work on loving the church because that will, that's that, that's going to work really well and and train you up really well for when one day you do get married. Yeah, that's good. And and on, and on top of that, you know, if I could just add to that excellent comment, uh, get ready to say two words a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> and be a quick practice repenting right now because you're going to, you're going to need to turn people down. I'm sorry. We, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, 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 knew I like what you're saying. That's good too. I knew, <laughs> I knew this guy once, Pastor Paul Carter, I think it was, uh, who told me that it, if it wasn't for his wife, he wouldn't know he was a sinner. So, um, our, I wouldn't do it as well as I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And <laughs> marriage has the ability just to squeeze your selfishness out of your heart and uh, that you didn't know what was there. So just be a quick repenter and uh, say, I'm sorry. A lot. Good, good, good. Uh, well, I want to move forward into Nehemiah. We kind of already got into Nehemiah because we were talking about the end of uh, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. Uh, Nehemiah was a, a really interesting leader, obviously. Uh, I, I mean, there's so much to love in Nehemiah. Yeah. I, I love all the little lines where they pair faith and action, you know, like we, we prayed and set a guard. Uh, you know, we had our, our tools in one hand and our swords in the other and uh, just just great stuff. Obviously, we hear from Nehemiah. Nehemiah actually punches above its weight in terms of its uh, word count and, and how frequently <laughs> we hear about it ton of men's conferences, leadership conferences, Nehemiah gets brought out. So I guess the question is, what can we learn from Nehemiah the leader? But is there, is there a danger in, in overusing the story of Nehemiah as if this is kind of the only paradigm of, of manliness and leadership uh, that we should be looking at 
So, Rob, uh, get us started on that, because I know in a minute you're also going to give us the intro to Esther. Yeah. So you're already in the story. Get us going on that. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Nehemiah is often used at church building funds season. Yep. Yeah, let's go to Nehemiah. I think Nehemiah shows us a lot. Like his character obviously can, I can, I can point to a bunch of things about the story that I can go, hey, great leadership. Yeah. You know, Maxwell would use this to kind of identify leadership potential in the church. You know, like it teaches us like leaders have a heart for God's people. I think about Nehemiah weeping in the beginning of the book, hearing about the state of, of yeah. the people in Jerusalem. So there's a heart for God's people, a compassionate heart. Um, you know, I think about when the church is led by men who are about power and prestige and not about compassion and empathy, then abuse, pride, ego, that's where that stuff comes from. Now, Nehemiah has his share of abuse at the end of the story when he's cracking heads and pulling beards, but there's a, certainly a heart of compassion and empathy for his people. Um, it talks about how, how when hardship or persecution comes against the church, leaders are quick to remind people that God's in control still. Like leaders, Nehemiah is constantly reminding people, hey, the Lord will fight for us. Don't forget the Lord's going to fight for us. Yes. And you said, Paul, pick up the sword, trust the Lord kind of thing. You know, there's that sentiment of God's in charge, not Nehemiah 520. God will fight for us through us, but he will fight for us. And so there's another thing. Um, it shows us that, you know, leaders, and I, I think men and women leaders um, fear God's word, like Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah repeals this practice of people like taking taxes from one another and mortgaging their fields off one another. And that's against God's law. And then what does he do? He doesn't take his own stipend for food from the people. He doesn't take the tax from them. Um, so there's some great things we can learn from Nehemiah, but I do think there is a, a real strong argument through the Nehemiah, the Ezra Nehemiah narrative about a plurality yeah. of leadership styles and, and, and leadership styles, because you know, each of these guys, and I include Zerubbabel. So I think there's like three guys. There's Zerubbabel, there's Ezra, and there's Nehemiah. Yeah, and you can throw Joshua in there. They... Jo yeah, exactly. The high priest. You know, I think each of them ministered in a very unique way. And I don't want to oversimplify them either. But like, you kind of have Nehemiah as this courageous leader who's got a bit of a temper that served him at times. But then you have this Ezra guy who's passionate about reform and the word. Now, all these guys kind of are, but they're, they're kind of leaning in. Ezra's the guy who gets up and opens the scriptures and preaches and teaches. And um, you have Zerubbabel who kind of comes out at the start and is kind of leading the charge from the start. And you've got these different personalities working kind of together. And I think, and it takes about like a hundred years or so to kind of accomplish this task. And I just think like, woe to us who think that we're God's gift to the church of leadership, like on our own, yeah. like, give me this church and I'll lead this church into the fray. Like that's folly. Like, I think we, we need a plurality of elders. We need godly men surrounding us who are capable, who are leading our churches together with different personality styles intermingling um, and to help accomplish. It. And I think that's why Romans 12 and Ephesians four tells us, you know, that God's equipped the church with different gifts and different members and apostles and teachers and prophets. And, you know, we just need, we need one another in different styles, not just one style. I think that whole narrative, Ezra Nehemiah really highlights that for us in a real way. Well, and interestingly in the Hebrew Bible, that's, it's all one book, right? Yeah. So Ezra and Nehemiah are, are one book in the Hebrew Bible. And then for whatever reason in the English Bible, they're separated. And, and I think maybe that's unfortunate because yeah. it does allow us to kind of pick our favorite, right? Some of us are drawn to Ezra. I've, I've highlighted that, that verse in Ezra where it talks about, you know, he was zealous for the law. He was a man skilled in knowledge. And I'm like, oh, I want to be that guy. 
Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure there are other people who love Nehemiah 13, where he's pulling out people's hair and hitting them. Yeah. And like, I want to be that guy. <laughs> and maybe it'd be helpful to see, see this all together that, yeah, it takes a plurality of, of leaders to, you know, to, to build or to steward the house of God. Yeah. That. And either one of you guys want to jump in on that before we move forward? I just think the very last verse in Nehemiah 13 is interesting or the last phrase, maybe mm. remember me, my God with favor. It's just a, an odd little ending to this book It is where in one sense, you can almost seem like kind of like a pastor and not everything's exactly how he wants it. And he just turns it over to the Lord in a sort of a last act of, of hope, perhaps, I guess yeah. you can see it more cynical than that, but I, I think hope is probably the, an okay tone to assume here. I do really love verse 21 though. Like it's probably my favorite line of chapter 13. Like if you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Yeah. Like I just, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> just that like, is, that, that's a lot of guys favorite, favorite verse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that shouldn't be the model of your ministry by yeah. any means. Yeah. Just, have that verse uh, put on your tasers. That you have yeah. That's the truth. <laughs> exactly. Right. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move forward into Esther because uh, er, er, Every time we meet a new, a new book in our seven-day reading cycle, we'll try to give you a bit of an introduction. And uh, Rob, I know we threw to you on the Nehemiah thing, but, but Esther is one of your favorite books to buy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. thought of talking about it, so get us started on that. Yeah, and I'm going to try my best to be succinct. So, you know, uh, Esther takes place in between this 50-year gap of Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. That's where the story kind of falls. It's during the, the reign of Xerxes, who in Esther is actually called Ahasuerus. So it's about 486 to 465. That's kind of the timeline we're talking about. So it's in between uh, Nehemiah coming and Ezra, um, or Ezra coming the second time. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the purpose is really to explain what the Feast of Purim is all about. Uh, that's kind of the point of the book, ultimately. But some of the lessons that Ezra give us, I think, are not only just powerful, but very relevant um, for today. One of the primary things that Ezra, I mean, sorry, Esther really focuses on is it shows us how God is sovereign and in control, even when it seems like he's just not there when he's, he's just kind of distant. You know, we're talking about Jews who didn't return, who didn't come back to Jerusalem, who stayed kind of are assimilated into the culture. They pretty much have zero distinctives almost of that kind of make them Jewish outside of culturally. And um, Esther shows us how God is working even amidst these people. Um, it, it, it shows us how God is like moving, like keeping a, the king awake when he's yeah. one night and he reads, assembles onto something or how he's even keep in control of this King's public pride fueled drunken marital spat with his wife in chapter one in order to create a vacuum for Esther to come into the story yeah. or like um, Mordecai stumbling on the assassination plot or, or Haman building the, the, the gallows that are going to hang himself. Like God is sovereign and working in all these things. Um, throughout the book, everywhere you look, you just see God's sovereignty controlling everything and all to protect his people from this Agagite, Haman, who's trying to destroy God's people from everywhere. And the across. fact that Agagite is interesting too, right? I oh, mean, that we could get into that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but again, it just reminds there, there are always agents of, of the devil, agents of the enemy who want to destroy God's people. In every generation, there's an agag. There's a there's an antichrist. You could even there say. is, yeah. And there's so many. And it just so happened, or 
at that very moment, you know, lines in this, there's just highlight God's sovereignty, but it also highlights in an amusing way, kind of the powerlessness of Kings and political powers in the face of God's plan. Yeah. That's another key, huge key thing. You know, Ahasuerus, this Prince of Persia is almost presented as this kind of like easily manipulated King whose advisors and servants are just all using him to get these laws, these crazy laws passed for their own purposes. He approves of legislations like in Esther one that force women to submit to their husbands. Um, He lets Haman write this bill to kill all the Jews. And he signs away that thing kind of pretty easily. Um, And, and and there's, there's a sentiment here that we ought not to put our hope in legislations or princes or Kings because of this. Um, And there's been some controversy around the book of Esther because the God's not mentioned. That's also a very key thing here like the lord's name is not mentioned anywhere in this book you know martin luther famously says it does it doesn't deserve to be canonical <laughs> so he had some issues with it um in my opinion i think this book really does remind us of god's control in the face of these battling political powers and how god will always defend his people i think that's a message for us today you know when political powers are raging and things look like they're out of control and we're feeling a little insecure and what's happening and look at these laws, the Lord is in control. The Lord is sovereign. He is ordaining. He can withhold the sleep of the King so that his purposes to defend his people can happen. And that that's, there's so much hope for us in this story. It's awesome. We could talk about that all day. Yeah. Uh, I want to just for the sake of time, I want to move into the new Testament. If we can, we've got a, a couple of things to hit there. Uh, we read through, I think, the, the real meat of, of Matthew. I mean, obviously, the whole book is fantastic, but we were in uh, some pretty theologically deep waters this past week. Started off uh, in Matthew 22, uh, which we're going to come back to in just a minute. Matthew 23, we could talk about all day long, right? The, the harsh denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 24 to 25, the Olivet Discourse, which is, I think, arguably the most complicated eschatological discourse yeah. in the New Testament. I mean, it, lots of moving pieces there. Uh, so anyway, we're going to have to be selective. But in terms of immediate relevance, Matthew 22, 15 to 22 is obviously right at the top of our minds. The basic story there, of course, the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians team up, which is weird in and of itself because they didn't like each other. But they, they teamed up to try to catch uh, Jesus in a conundrum. Uh, most commentators say they were trying to basically cut Jesus' support base in half. Uh, they chose a contentious issue. Should we pay tax to the Romans or not? Some Jews said no. So if Jesus said yes, then he would lose their support. Uh, others said yes. Um, and if Jesus said no, then uh, you know they could maybe take, take Jesus to the Romans and get him charged there. Uh, the devil is always looking to use politics to divide the support base of Jesus Christ. I'm sure. I'm sure there's relevant. What? what? Yeah, I'm sure there's some relevance uh, there. But anyway, let's go right right to the text. Here's here's what happens. Uh, they they come to him. They try to catch Jesus in a net. Jesus catches them in the net. He says, "Show me the coin for the tax." They brought him a denarius. Verse 20. And Jesus said to them. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left and went away. So the main idea here is that Jesus establishes that Christians uh, are all, in essence, living simultaneously in two kingdoms. They are subject to God and to God's authority, and they need to render unto God what, what is due to God. 
but they're also simultaneously subject to human authorities and they need to render under those human authorities that which is owed to them as well. So let me throw this out to the panel. How do these obligations go together? How do we understand and balance these potentially completing obligations? Yeah, nothing controversial there. You just, <laughs> something easy to get you started. Go ahead. Well, Jesse, Jesse, why don't you go? You go for it. <laughs> okay, well, um, I think this forces us to face a real question about how do we see these authorities, secular authorities, civil rule and its role, and then the role of spiritual authority or that of the spirits and Christ's kingdom in the world and in the church and, and in the believer. And the question is like, are they, are they two completely different spheres that literally it's the apocalypse if they were to overlap, like the world ends, it's the worst thing that can happen. Um, like we see in the centuries kind of following the early church, like we see what, that, what happening with the Roman, with the Rome, Rome and the Catholic church. And there becomes this Italian kind of like power struggle. And it's quite interesting to see what happens in, in, in the latter centuries. Or is there a sense of how both are Christ's rule yeah. in different ways, hmm. but with different focuses? Is there a sense that the civ that civil government and the spirit's government and Christ's kingdom and the life of the church and the believer are both the rule of Christ. And, and I would argue, I think that that seems to be the consistency with what we see with Peter and Paul and their teaching in the new Testament. And also with the reformers and like people like Luther and people like Calvin uh, that would teach that the state and the church are kind of both governments or rule of God. And, and they serve almost different purposes. They are separate. They have unique functions um, and are specialized in the way that I understand it, but they both are necessary as long as we are sojourners on this week. I think of, um, I've been reading through Luther's secular authority and on page 21, he says this, just to give us a hint of maybe how Luther understands this. He says this, if government and the sword serve God, as he has argued before, then everything that government needs in order to bear the sore is equally a service to God. There has to be someone to catch the wicked, to accuse them, to accuse them, and to protect, acquit, defend, and save the good. Um, and so I think there's an idea from, from, from Luther that the, go the government serves a purpose on behalf of God to punish evildoers and to, and, and to act. And, and Calvin will make some actually funny, quite funny arguments in the same way. I think at one point he talks about it being Jewish folly, Ju Judaistic folly, that we would try to eradicate a kind of civil government and just make everything a kingdom government. He's like, oh, that's going to be chaos. That's what the Jews were trying to do. And that's just, it's foolishness. Um, so I think what we need to see is both governments are different, but both are intended by God that we obey and submit to both of them. They kind of, they're different arms of God's rule and reign on earth. That's how, that's how I understand. I'd love to hear from the other guys. Uh, that's that's well said. I mean, when you talk about what Luther was, was saying there, he's basically quoting Romans 13, 4, speaking of the civil magistrate, he is God's servant for yeah. you. So Luther would of, often distinguish between the immediate rule of Christ over the spiritual realm, over the believer's heart, yeah. over conscience, etc. That's immediate. 
and and then the the rule of Christ over the horizontal realm, the realm of human behavior, through the agency of the magistrate, mm-hmm. such that basically to there are it's basically saying generally speaking, to obey Caesar is to obey Christ because Christ is Caesar's Lord, and Caesar is Jesus' servant, uh, and and that's literally what Paul says here in Romans thirteen four. He in in this case Nero Caesar is God's servant. Um, and then so he goes on to say, render unto all what is due, respect to whom respect is due. Jesse, you were going to jump in, or Wyatt, Wyatt, I, I thought maybe you'd left. We haven't heard you. <laughs> well, yeah. well, look, I, I mean, it's a bit of a cheat, but I, I think once you get into the book of Acts and you see Paul, who's summoned by the resurrected Christ to preach the gospel, and yet is captured, obeys all the laws and regulations of all the different trials he goes through, finally appeals to Caesar, doesn't think... I should escape because my mission is more important than submitting to this. In fact, he imitates Christ by mm-hmm. means of going before the Roman magistrate and perhaps even having what he would consider an unjust sentence uh, thrown against him. Eventually, he does die in Rome. And greatly delayed. like Greatly delayed for years. Was, delayed, right? was it for two years in Caesarea and then two years in Rome? So I mean, four years when he when he wanted to be out planting churches, he was stuck in little eight by ten boxes. But what's unique about that is, yeah, that did happen. And yet, even though he was kind of arrested or uh, pulled into this, does his mission actually falter at all in any way, shape, or form? Or does God use what was say meant for evil by individuals for good? You know, I am bound, but the word of God is not bound. Yeah, I just uh, I think, Rob, everything you said, I agree with. I just think it's so wise and good. And I think the Bible is so I mean, to be frank, the Bible is so abundantly clear on these things that I find counter arguments are not full of Bible verses often, but full of opinion. Let me let me me, uh, press on something. So, Rob, you talked about, you know, spheres that that, you know, must not overlap. I assume you're sort of referring to this sphere sovereignty approach, which is uh, a bit of a departure from uh, historic two kingdoms yeah. approach, which was the, the f- norm among first generation, certainly Luther and Calvin. Uh, and, and then in uh, when you get into Abraham Kuyper, you, you get this idea of sphere sovereignty. So this is the church, this is the government, this is the family, and really bad things happen if, there, if there's any attempt to overlap. So I, I guess I would say that the confusing thing there is even, even when people attempt to make that argument, they recognize overlap. Like I would hope that, that no pastor would say because that, you know, the church and the home are separate spheres. If a husband beats his wife, it's wrong for the wife to call the police. Right. One of the things we say here is, you know, husbands, yes, you, you do have a responsibility to exercise spiritual leadership in the home. But I, I've said multiple times from the pulpit, if you hit your wife, I want you to know two things. Number one, we will, the, our first call will be 911. I'll call the cops on you. And, and then our second call will be to, to hold a board meeting to put you under church discipline. So you will come under two forms yeah. of horizontal authority, irrespective of your sphere sovereignty. And, and I haven't met too many people who believe in sphere sovereignty who don't agree with that. Yep. Uh, so I, I think maybe sometimes we exaggerate the differences between the positions, but I, I do think the nomenclature of the reformers is more is more useful. Well, and I think that's why this idea of both are two different governments of Christ, like two different expressions of Christ's control. I I think that's far superior than sphere saw an overlap. Like 
it's their, their, they, I think that I definitely the reformers were very clear to say that they have different functions, but they're both Christ. Like they're both Christ and we shouldn't try to pit them against each other. Yes. Yes. And along those lines, thank you so much for that. That's excellent. Along those lines, I I would say as well, there seems to be a modern proclivity to say, I am going to submit to the constitution. I am going to submit to the charter of rights and freedoms, but I'm not going to submit to my leaders. But you have that problem down in the States. I'd love to hear from you. We literally have a head of state. Like, uh, you know, we're not a constant, we are, we're a a parliamentary monarchy. So um, like literally our head of state is a person. Um, but but Americans will make the argument that their head of state is a paper, right? I right. find baffling, but I'm not American. So how, yeah. how, walk me through that. Yeah. So so I, I don't know that it's it's well articulated, but I have heard it from several people that they say, listen, um, the leadership is acting out of line with what we what the Constitution says. Therefore, we should not submit to them. And what I would just say to that is, listen. Um, this is not the place for civil disobedience. You're called to submit to your leaders, not to a piece of paper, which is what Romans 13 is all about. He's not saying submit to the law. He's saying submit to Caesar, uh, who is a who is a person. And if you have issues uh, with the president or, or with uh, an upper leader, then you go to lesser magistrates to appeal your case. Right. And uh, that's, where you, that's where you need to go. You need to go to the courts. You need to bring the lawsuit or whatever through the correct means, through the legislature to, to get this thing uh, figured out. Let now, me pause on that just so that I can highlight what you've said, because I think that's the way out of the logjam. Mm-hmm. Uh, because re- regardless of whether you identify your head of state as a person or a paper, um, the Bible nor the reformers uh, encourage the individual to engage in, in active rebellion. Um, the, the, the Bible would, in, would encourage you, you know, limits on the understanding of, of the temporal authority. Acts 5, of course, we must obey God rather than men. So if, if the person, if the paper, whoever your, your authority is, if, if you are given a command to do something that God forbids, or you're forbidden to do something God commands. The, you know, Luther was very clear that the magistrate does not have the authority to compel the conscience. That's, yeah. that is to step out of his, his realm. But that's where they left it. They, they said, you know, that's the zone. The, the magistrate must not compel the conscience. Luther, though, said that the magistrate can and should be involved in adiaphora, meaning when you have services, uh, what they look like, all, all that kind of stuff. So Luther gave more permission there than, than probably we would like. But, but then again, it was Calvin who, who really articulated the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. So if there's an issue, it's not for the individual Christian to get distracted by that. And it's unseemly for the individual Christian to, to be living in open sedition or rebellion. Appeal to the other powers, appeal to the lesser magistrate. You know, I, I think right now, for example, in our context, we should be in, investing in, in uh, Christian legal institutions that are going to challenge the legality of these things. That's the right way to do it. But the individual Christian should not be living in open rebellion. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and just to add to that, Pastor Paul, is in a democratic society, we elect the leader. In a representative republic, the electors represent the, the presidential <laughs> ticket. And so after, we, in the words of Al Mohler and Russ Moore, we hand them the sword, if you will, and we are called to submit to those people. And so that's what I would reply to those who want to submit to the paper of the Constitution. And I would say, listen, they may be acting out of line with the Constitution, but God still calls us to submit to them and appeal to the lesser magistrate. The paper gives power to certain people. That's the part of the argument I've never really understood. I mean, the, the, 
the American paper, the Constitution gives gives power to to certain branches to to execute on behalf of the paper. So you're still left with people wielding power to whom respect is due. So I'm I'm not sure it, it's really the 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 get out of jail free card that that it's sometimes presented as. One distinction that we haven't made that I think is actually useful in this conversation is that there might be a difference between the, what, what a church can do according to charter rights or constitutional rights versus an individual. Yeah. And sometimes the argument gets kind of melded together. So an individual says, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. I don't need to be safe. I can disobey all I want. But that's you as an individual. That's entirely different than a complicated argument that your church has the right to worship, perhaps on a Sunday morning. And I think we need to be really careful on that. No matter where you land, individuals need to obey the law according to their individual responsibility in their state or province or city or whatever it is, which is distinct from maybe a complicated argument for why the church can worship on Sunday. Hmm. Um, I just, I think that gets conflated, but it's important to separate because an individual doesn't have the right to say, (laughs) they can challenge it in court, of course, but I'm not going to wear a seatbelt. I'm going to speed if I want to, or I'm not going to wear a... That would lead to anarchy. If the standard... Because a lot of people say, well, I, I'm only, the Bible only tells me to obey just laws. It's like, are you going to be the one to decide that? <laughs> what own? is just, right? Yeah, uh, that's, that's it. I mean, that leads to anarchy. And so there needs to be a process and, and uh, you know, again, the appeal to the lesser magistrate. But, but again, if we're going to say, well, I'm only going to uh, uh, obey laws that make sense to me. Good night. That's the end of civilization right there. Neither Luther nor Calvin admitted any situation for personal rebellion. Uh, they, there was passive resistance, which is totally different. Mm. Um, passive resistance. Luther said, if they come for your Bible, don't give it to them. Uh, and if they arrest you, well, you know, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Right. Yeah. But he, he didn't say, you know, go, go burn down the magistrate's office, passive resistance. But the, and, and then Calvin said, if it is in your power, if you're in a position to, to question unjust laws, then by all means do so. Calvin was operating in a slightly different system with a city council. And, and so there were, there were people in that position who could challenge higher magistrates. I think one thing that we're missing here in Canada, maybe, maybe it's more in the States, I don't know enough about that, but is this, like when you read through these guys, they're constantly reminding these magistrates, you work for God. Yeah. Like constantly, it's like a constant, like they see their role in calling these civil magistrates to understand that their boss is God. And when I think when you don't have that and when you lose the prophetic voice of the, of the church into the magistrates, into the lives of these people, and, and you don't have believers in these positions, we're, we're, I think there's a breakdown there because, yeah, we're not, we're not influencing those who are making those rules enough. And I think we need to get back to like yeah. preaching to politicians, you know, somehow. <laughs> well, and the reason we don't is because we, we you know, we're, we've all heard many times the separation of church and state, which is true. But I think that's where actually one of the tools in our toolbox needs to be natural law. Uh, I just finished uh, Carl Truman's book on uh, the rise and triumph of the the modern self. And that's actually one of the last, I think it's on the last page of the book where he says, Christians need to start talking again about natural law because natural law becomes the basis to to appeal to the government to, Mm -hmm. to, uh, to fulfill their responsibilities and obligations to the citizenry. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> I can only affirm that. I think that's because if you want to have a basis for civil society, there has to be some layer of truth that is real yes. because God created the whole universe. Yeah. And if God created the whole universe, whatever he created has to have some stability order structure to it. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, maybe it's different from proclaiming the gospel, but 
don't murder is still don't murder, right? You can tell a governor don't murder. You can oppose abortion. You can oppose On the basis of physician, national yeah, physician assisted dying, all these sorts of things. And we do it passively, as you noted, but we do it because it's right. Just it is because of natural law. And that's a vital thing we need to recover. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, and, Justin, you were going to jump in there. Yeah. And in addition to this conversation, sort of as a side note, a little bunny trail, there is a place to use the laws uh, to accomplish missionary goals, uh, to maximize our permissions, right? Um, so for example, Paul used an official appeal to Caesar, uh, in order to get him to Rome and preach the gospel in the heart of the world. That's one of the reasons why he did that, I believe. Uh, so laws can be leveraged to accomplish missiological ends. First Corinthians nine says that by all means, uh, I might save some, I mean, I think that's, that's a means. Yeah. So well said. And, and you see that in Acts 16 too, right? Where he pulls out his, I'm a Roman citizenship card, yeah. uh, which forces the magistrates to come and in essence, provide validation to the church gathering. It protects them there. Yeah, it buys them permission. Right. Um, so I agree. And there's there's so much confusion around this. I've had people say to me, well, Pastor Paul, you don't advocate for civil disobedience in this situation. Does that mean you're happy with the lockdown? It's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not at all happy with the lockdown. <laughs> um, but that's, that's not the, the question. Because again, I, it's not as though I can disobey any law that doesn't please me. I also don't like speed limits. Um, but, but, but that's not the issue. The issue isn't which laws please pastor Paul. Uh, the issue is what's, what's the right way to handle this stuff. And I, I think there is, there's a need, uh, to, to let our governments know that there's more to be thinking about here than, than just the spread of this virus. That's important, but there, there are other things. So we can, we can bring that voice of natural law. And then I think it's, it's appropriate to, to test whether the the standard that's in the charter, reasonable limits, whether that standard has been adhered to in, uh, in, in what has been done with respect to charter rights. So I'm all for lawsuits, uh, not malicious lawsuits, but lawsuits that seek clarity. And I'm all for, you know, speaking truth to power. I, I just, I don't, I don't see anywhere in scripture, the argument for, for blatant civil disobedience by individuals. Uh, speaking of natural law, we just both made the point that that needs to be recaptured. Just, I mentioned, I just finished Carl Truman's book. Uh, this is the book that is now on my shelf. Natural Law, A Brief Introduction of Biblical Defense, David Haynes, Andrew Fulford. So that, that might be a useful resource. You know that David Haynes lives pretty close to you. He could drive to his house. I had no idea. Uh, well, pretty close to the relative. It's like six hours away, but nonetheless. Well, I thought you meant like he lived in <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> well, let's up. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to give out his information on a public podcast. Yeah. But great, great. Funny. Yeah. Okay. No, get, get back to me. All that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have two passages more that I want to hit. So uh, I'll just move us forward into Matthew 27. And I'll say this. I mean, I'm sure our listeners are disappointed. We just jumped from Matthew 22 to Matthew 27. Yeah. Uh, but the great, this is, the, this is one of the great things about the RMM Bible reading plan. It, you're going to read all four gospels twice this mm. year. So that means, there are going to be eight opportunities for, for us to talk about some of these great stories. Uh, so we will, we will get there uh, in due time. But I want, I want to draw your attention to something that I know is a struggle for first-time Bible readers. And it's the passage in Matthew 27, 45 to 46. It says, it's the moment of Christ's death. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama samachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what does that mean? Uh, 
if you're a first time Bible reader, but you, you remember that the Trinity is pretty important and you're wondering how does this all go together? Jesus is God's beloved son. What, what in the world's happening here? Help our first time Bible readers make sense of this passage. Well, I, I mean, some, maybe some basic parameters is uh, God is one. So it would be odd for God to say that God hates himself or something or forsakes himself. So you have to think through what's actually happening. Well, Jesus Christ is our mediator in the garden. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Take this cup away from me. So one important thing is to see that whatever Christ does is for us and for our salvation. And so he's speaking here according to his role as the mediator between God and man. And he's, you know, theologically, we say he's taking the sin of the world upon himself and he's suffering the just consequences of it for our sake. So one simple way to put it, although there's more questions to be asked, is Jesus is speaking as the mediator here between God and man for our sake. And so that with respect to his human nature, he is experiencing what it means to be cut off from God. Uh, I don't mean to distract us and get us off this passage, but so if this is not where you're going to go, that's fine. But would, would you say this is what is meant in the Apostles' Creed or what's the relationship of when the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell? How does that relate to, to this low point in the gospel narratives? Why you're laughing? So that means you I just have to think that is like the most controversial question to ask. Uh, it's a great question. <laughs> in the last um, five, five minutes of the program, just go ahead and and handle that. That's the, okay, that's that is Calvin's view that this God forsaken us on the cross is Him essentially going to hell for us. He's experiencing the torment of all that that means for our sake and for our salvation. The sign of the sky, you know, there's the, the ground opens up, the dead arise, all this kind of stuff happens around this. Another view is the more uh, probably a bit more of an ancient view is that Christ actually does descend, pulls the Old Testament saints up to heaven. They're in the heavenly Jerusalem because of this. And then in, I think it's Matthew 27, there is a resurrection that happens of some of the dead that kind of prefigure the Old Testament saints zipping up. It's to, an uh, eschatological drama in yeah. miniature, doesn't it? I mean, there's a sense in which this shows the end of the world in miniature uh, as you know, Jesus is sort of playing both sides of the drama, as it were. Right. He's descending into hell under the wrath of God, but but also causing general resurrection. Tombs are opening. People, it, there's it's almost like a, a miniature foretaste, a preview mm. of the eschatological end. Right. Right. The one thing I would say is wherever you land on this, it is true that Jesus Christ dies for our sake, taking the full blunt of whatever it means to be God forsaken for our salvation, and that's not just for us, like you and me individually, but for all the saints in the Old Testament. So whether you think it is more of a, a physical descent that he pulls out up to heaven, or rather if it's the, the kind of more psychological view that Kelvin has, in both cases, it's the same result. He did it for us, for our salvation, and we get to go to heaven. So I think where you land on that one's maybe He did very well. Like, I, you know, for that was a very big question, but I think that's an excellent answer. You guys want to yeah. jump in on that? Yeah. So, so I, I do not believe, obviously none of us believe this, but the father did not forsake him in terms of ontology. Like, so there's no severing of the Trinity. Jesus remains God throughout the entire mm -hmm. process. Um, so the father, I believe forsook him in terms of intimacy with respect to his human nature. Jesus feels the displeasure upon him. He became our sin, right? So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, in a very real, real way, the father's pouring out his wrath on the son and he's experiencing what it's like to be humanity coded in our sins and uh, what it's like to be uh, under the judgment of God uh, for us with respect to his human nature. I want to also add maybe a, a bit more of you in a basic thing is, is, you know, Jesus is using the language of lament found in Psalm 22. Yeah. 
And here in that, in that Psalm, the Psalmist is feeling the weight of man's accusations and scorn against them. And he quotes verse one, something I didn't notice until I was, I was walking out for a walk. I used the app, shout out to the app dwell, where you can just listen to the scriptures. They have the RMM on there too. I don't do it all the time, but I was out and listening to this passage and, um, in Matthew 27, in verse 43, the chief priests say to Jesus, he trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, right? That's what he says about to, to Jesus. Well, they are literally quoting Psalm 22, just a couple of verses later, verses 7 to 8, which say this, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads and they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. The chief priests are literally in their mocking of Jesus, quoting the mocking of the psalmist's enemies in Psalm 22. Yeah. They're, they're fulfilling this mocking. And I think this picture demonstrates what is happening. You have the scorn of the people of God falling on God's anointed. I think of what Stephen says, right? In Acts 7, you, like which one of the prophets didn't you mock? Didn't you persecute? And yeah. we see this happening here is why it said, the scorn and the and the and the mocking of Israel falling on Christ, he is he is taking on their abuse. He is taking on their disbelief and sin, and um, yeah, it's just power. It just hit me. I had tears. I was like listening to this, going, "Man, like uh, this." It's a very powerful moment. Rock, yeah. can I just add to that? Psalm twenty-two in the same psalm, the psalmist says, "You answered me, yeah, and I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. Uh, kingship belongs to the Lord." There actually is a rescue that happens in Psalm 22. Mm-hmm. There is a resurrection that happens three days later. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Then- it's, it's, all, it, there's a parallel here, just in terms of, I always have two tracks open in my mind uh, when we're doing these shows and when we're, uh, when we're doing the, po- when I'm doing the podcast, like on, on one track, there's the, let's explain the passage on the other track. It's let's help people see how the Bible's put together, how the Bible works, help people get better at reading the Bible for themselves. I think what we're seeing here is a bit of an echo of the principle we talked about in Genesis, where, you know, sometimes our Western minds want to get into these very fine points and, and uh, of definition, whereas the Bible has tends to provide principles and illustrations. Uh, so it, in essence, we sometimes miss the story as we sift, sift through it for these fine principles to start as and provide. Mm. But what we're seeing, this is a story. This is a visual moment. Jesus is in, in essence, acting as humanity and he is he is lamenting as humanity in the psalm provided for that mm. in the bible and and so he is he is humanity on the cross separated by sin from intimacy with the father from communion with the father mm. he descends to hell whether spatially or psychologically folks will differ but he experiences the essence of hell in this story which is to say the loss of intimacy with, with the mm. father, the, the darkness, the, the, the separation. And then there is a rescue. There is an up. That Psalm has an, has an up, has an, a rescue ending. And we see that played out in the tombs open, the saints of old coming, coming out there. There's a picture there. There's an illustration uh, that, that I think we miss because we're looking for fine, Find principles. Mm. D.A. Carson, as I think I said this last week, <laughs> when, in, when in doubt, just quote D.A. Carson. He usually says, if we ask in what ontological sense, right? If we ask a very Western philosophical question, in what ontological sense the Father and the Son are here divided, the answer must be that we do not know because we are not told. 
close mm. quote. So the story is not intending to, to teach ontology. It is, it is illustrating, it's, it's, it's a lived experience that we're invited into. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's the point. And it's a pretty powerful point, as you say, Ron. Yeah, and just one, maybe one comment when people ask the question like, well, how can Jesus empathize with us if he never sinned? I'm like, just read this. <laughs> like yeah. his empathy was he bore your sin like he paid the weight of your sin. He didn't sin like you sin, but he can empathize better than you can with your sin, you know, and that's the power of what Jesus went through. Well done. Lastly, and we kind of already touched on this, uh, jumping forward from uh, Matthew 22. So this week in Acts, we will have read um, the conclusion of Paul's journey through the Roman court system, which, which is just interesting. And, uh, and it provides some opportunity to reflect on what we were talking about, the Christians relating to the state. So just uh, in, a, you know, in a couple minutes, give us some of your reflections. Paul just had a several chapters long journey through the Roman court system. Any, any principles we can glean from that that might be helpful for us? Because for the first time in my lifetime anyway, but I would even argue probably for the first time in, a, in the history of our countries, Christians are finding themselves occasionally on the pointy end of the law. So there might be something we can learn here. What did you see? Oh, just one maybe brief note is that uh, in chapter 23 of Acts, he's before the Sanhedrin. This would be this largely the same group who put to death Jesus, the Messiah with the Roman government. Both of these groups, Paul pays absolute respect to and deference to. In fact, when he insults someone and and finds out that it's a high priest, he, he repents. Yeah. Like it was wrong to do that. It's like, oh, I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize that. I always find that verse a compelling argument for Paul's blindness, right? Yeah. Uh, like, how did you not know that? Oh, right. You know, you need, I would love, I would love to see that in a movie because I feel yeah. like what he says, you whitewashed what? Like, I'm like, oh, I want to see that. Yeah. Video. And I mean, who, who are we allowed to talk to like that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Titus 3 says that you should pay perfect courtesy to all people, there's no exception to politicians. Yeah, and uh, for politicians rather. So I just think it's it's so interesting that the these guys are by definition unjust. Yeah, they killed Jesus, the just one. Yeah. and still yeah. their role of authority is something to respect. Paul doesn't agree with them. He's not not at all. And in fact, he spends chapters fighting against them in terms of the proper legal way, yeah. a la the lesser magistrate, whatever you want to call it. And so he doesn't tolerate what he what he thinks is bad, but yet, or he does tolerate rather, but he is able to say it's wrong, 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 and still pay deference to to whom deference is due. And the end story is the gospel spreads and he's preaching in Rome because of this, you know, he's preaching the kingdom. And we may have a great opportunity. You know, I wonder if there, if there are lawsuits that sort of press the issue of charter rights, because, you know, the government has a burden to, to demonstrate that um, charter rights were not infringed. Uh, they can be they can be restricted so as to recognize other competing concerns. That's legal. They're not to be infringed. And so they have to show that, that, that whatever restrictions were imposed were justifiable on the, on the basis of other needs. As that goes through the courts, and it will, as that goes through the courts, we may have a great opportunity to, to talk about what we do, why the church is essential. You know, I think a lot of this has just been a, a negative reaction in Canada anyway to that, to the phraseology of the government. Like when the government says, well, these folks are essential so they can stay open. And like the yeah. liquor store is essential and, and church is not as essential. So I think we were offended by the language. But as we have the opportunity to go through the court systems after the fact, right, the immediate concern is making sure that all our neighbors don't die. 
after the fact, though, when we when we sit down and say, well, let's just talk about under what circumstances the government can restrict charter rights, we may have a great opportunity to say, did you know we do this? Did you know we do this? Did you know we do this? And great glory might accrue to Christ. Yeah, Paul, I've been reading through Kirby Anderson's book, Christians in Government. And in it, at the end, when he talks about civil disobedience, he says, Christians must be willing to accept the punishment for civil disobedience. That's part of the catch. You can civilly disobey, but you got to be willing to pay the cost like Paul was. And I, I, this is what we see here, like Paul sitting on his principles, but obedient and willing to pay the cost. And I think of Philippians 1. It's probably written during this time when he's in prison in Rome. And what does he say? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now more bold to speak the word like, hey, man, like if I think it would be amazing for a couple pastors to get thrown in jail and to be a model to the rest of the church to preach the gospel. I don't wish that on them, but I, when I look at Paul and I see his life and what that did for the ministry of the gospel, I mean, like man. Soldiers and guards to, to Christ. Uh, so there's a certain attitude we better have when, when we're coming onto the pointy end of the law as well. Yeah. And not try to skirt out of it at the last second, you know, but follow through. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so just again, highlighting the uh, maximizing our permissions, I think back to Acts 16 and uh, the apostle Paul being a Roman citizen struck with the Roman fasces, the bundle of wooden rods stripped down publicly. It, it, he, he appeals uh, through the jailer to, to the magistrate and says, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. And yet he stays within the jail. Once the Lord miraculously shakes mm -hmm. off the fetters and opens the doors and he shares the gospel. He yeah. uses whatever opportunity he has um, to lay down his rights and to serve those for the sake of saving their souls. So that the jailer was his life was saved physically, but also spiritually because he was converted with along with his family. And then he was baptized. And then at the very end of Acts, um, maybe I just want to highlight this as a second note. I was really struck in Acts 28. I think it's tomorrow's reading, but I was reading ahead a little bit. I was struck by the Lord's kindness to the apostle Paul that in the midst of his persecution, even though he was under house arrest and rented lodging for two years, it says in verse 31, very last verse of acts preaching yeah. the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And I, I think about the apostle Paul while in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, an, what an amazing thing that is that the Lord is so kind. He, he gave the apostle Paul, his dream ministry in the heart of the world in Rome, right at the end of his life, probably. And uh, he, he, he loves his servants. He, he will always minister for the, the sake of the salvation of those who will come. Yeah. yeah and I, I think that's where the doctrine of God's sovereignty is a kindness. You know, we've, we've been all over the map uh, in this conversation but a lot of the, the, the conversation has been about God's sovereignty, right? Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's interesting in the Jacob and Esau story, all the conniving, all the weird activity involved in that. I mean, uh, Rebecca and Isaac are not model parents. You know, there's favoritism, there's lying, there's deceit. And then Jacob gets into the act. All that weirdness going on, all that unjust, inappropriate behavior. Nevertheless, God's plan works out perfectly. God said in the womb what would happen. And that's exactly what ended up happening. The older shall serve the younger. 
And, and then again, here with Paul, all this injustice, you know, he's being treated unfairly. People were lying about him. There were plots. There was false testimony given. And yet, nevertheless, what happened was exactly what God wanted to happen. Mm -hmm. The gospel was preached from the very heart of Rome. Mm -hmm. And so there's, I, I think there's a reminder there that we never need to do the right thing the wrong way. We, we never need to, you know, do the Hagar thing and, you know, try to force, force the program uh, no, God's going to, God's going to bring about his will. And, and, and so there's, there's never any need for us to, to, to do that. Just do what's right in every situation and trust that the Lord, Lord will bring about his purposes. God is sovereign over it all. He's mm. going to work it out. Whatever happens, this is going to result in glory for Christ and good for God's people. We can trust Amen. even, even when we're in the midst of circumstances that are un, unjust, even when things are being done that shouldn't be done. God's will. all things, all things will work out for the good of those who are called. Right. So anyway, that's probably a good place to leave it. Mm -hmm. That is all the time we have for today. Uh, we'll be back on the 4th of February to walk through the next seven chapters that we'll be encountering in these four different columns. But before we sign off, Jesse, I wonder if we could get you, uh, this will be your last visit with us for, for the foreseeable future. I wonder if we could get you to pray for us, uh, pray for our churches, pray for our listeners. Uh, and pray for our, our leaders who are making really difficult uh, decisions in unprecedented circumstances. So they'll need the wisdom of God. Would I'd be you? happy to. I'd be happy to. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we pray that if anyone is listening to this podcast and they are struggling to understand your word, that you would grant them light and clarity that you would shine the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, into their hearts. Grant them illumination and clarity, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to submit to the authority that you've set in place. And Lord, help us to know when we must obey you rather than man. Help us to maintain our witness without overreacting and disobeying when we've not yet hit the threshold of civil disobedience. Help us, Lord, to search the scriptures carefully. Help us to delight in your law like Ezra did, God. Help us to delight in righteousness. Help us meditate on your word day and night. Fill us with your spirit and form us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Make us into effective witnesses during this unique time of pressure and hardship in the world and in the church. And Lord, you are large and in charge. And so we pray that you would now glorify yourself um, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, thank you, panel. Thanks for being with us. And uh, God willing, we'll be right back here next week, February 4th, for another episode of Going Deeper with the fabulous End of the Word panel. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week.